Welcome to the American Maritime Podcast. We are glad to have you aboard. I'm your host, Jennifer Carpenter, Vice President of the American Maritime Partnership. We are just delighted to be joined by a very special guest today, Admiral Paul Zukunft, former Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. After a distinguished Coast Guard career, the Admiral served as the 25th Commandant from 2014 to 2018, and we are thrilled that he has made time in his schedule to join us. Admiral, thanks so much for being with us. Jennifer, thank you for having me, and it's just great to be able to connect with you again. Yes, it is. So put your hat back on as former Commandant as you look out over this very troubled world we're living in with the rise of China's maritime dominance, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, other global challenges. Where does the Jones Act fit in? Yeah, well, when I look back to when I was coming out of the Coast Guard, I also served with the members of the Joint Chief of Staff. Um, at that point in time, an invasion of Ukraine uh, was not on our radar. China very much at the forefront, uh, but we've seen a sea of change take place. Russia is now in Ukraine. Um, we don't know where China stands, um, but right now, you know, we're looking at economic sanctions as being another tool of warfare. And, and so economic security has become a very crucial pinnacle to our national security, more so than probably ever before. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I saw you authored an article in uh, the Honolulu Star Advertiser recently, and you talked about the importance of not ceding our strategic sea lift capability to foreign nations. Can you just kind of explain to our audience what do you mean by strategic sea lift? Uh, what impact does that have on our security, and how does the Jones Act fit in? Okay, before I say one word, China. So imagine, if you will, I mean, we have deep water ports in the Great Lakes, Gulf of Mexico, East Coast, West Coast, a latticework of rivers that connect all of that. You repeal the Jones Act, who's going to take our place? We have the geographic envy of the world with our deep water ports and our inland waterways um, that gives us an economic advantage. Who would want to leverage our advantage? China. And so do we cede this advantage of ours to a foreign nation that would more than happily build our ships, man those ships, and move our commerce both domestically and internationally as well? Yeah, absolutely. Not to mention, I can only imagine how much more challenging the U.S. Coast Guard's job would be if we had foreign vessels and foreign mariners plying the inland waterways of the United States. Tell us, what would that have looked like from your perspective leading the Coast Guard? Uh, my biggest concern, Jennifer, is what happens internally. Um, under the Maritime Transportation Security Act uh, of 2002, uh, sweeping changes were placed upon our maritime industry. And the first one was doing background checks of all of our mariners. Uh, we do background checks on foreign ships that arrive in our ports, um, and many of them are required to stay on those ships and not leave. Um, but if we have foreign merchantmen now in our internal waters, moving especially hazardous cargo. I'm talking about anhydrous ammonia, chlorine, ammonium nitrate, LNG, LPG, through our metropolitan areas. We don't know who these people are. I would lose sleep over that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I can only think of the implications for Coast Guard workload and, and consequently for Coast Guard funding. Yes. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. 
On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Let's zoom into a more localized question. After you retired from the Coast Guard, you settled in the beautiful state of Hawaii. Tell us why the Jones Act is important to Americans living in Hawaii. Uh, it's not fully appreciated. People look at this as old law, and it needs to be repealed, and it drives the cost of living in Hawaii to make it less affordable. Uh, quite honestly, it's not economically feasible for ships to deviate from great circle routes between the Asian market in LA Long Beach, Oakland, uh, the main markets to make a diversion into Hawaii. And if they do, it's gonna drive up the cost. And at the same time, they then have leverage over the cost per TEU, trainer equivalent unit, or a container um, coming into Hawaii because we don't export much. We mostly import, and we've never seen a disruption in our just-in-time inventory uh, between the West Coast and Hawaii during this supply chain disruption, if you will. Our Matson and Pacha ships are, are leaving on time, fully loaded, um, and the first indication of a supply shortage in Hawaii, toilet paper. There's not a run on toilet paper. We don't appreciate things until we don't have them. And if you don't have the Jones Act, we will then appreciate the Jones Act. Yeah. Amen. Really, really well said. I think it's just been fascinating to see over the last couple of years so many of the things that domestic maritime industry advocates have been saying about the Jones Act, its importance to supply chain reliability, its importance to our ability to protect our homeland security in an uncertain environment, uh, have just been made so much more visible by our experiences during the pandemic and now the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. Yeah. So let's zoom out a little bit. As you kind of look out, thinking into the future, what are things that you see, maybe from your background uh, as a national security leader, that American maritime really needs to focus on so that we are ready for the challenges ahead, not just those that are staring us in the face today? Yeah. Well, the first and foremost is military sea lift. Uh, and let's go back to World War II. It was all about logistics and our ability to energize our industry and then provide the sea lift to sustain our operations, especially in the European theater. Um, if we usurp that military sea lift to a foreign entity, uh, and then we want to carry out a military campaign, and say, sorry, we, we don't want to participate in this game. We're not players. Um, and what happens in that intervening period is, one, you don't have the ships. More importantly, you don't have the mariners. You cannot reconstitute the skill set overnight and now you have a campaign, but we can't support it with military sea lift. And so it becomes not just a weight game, it becomes a game we can't even play in. Uh, and that is not a position where we need to be today. Uh, we do need to continue to invest in our U.S. shipyards, our, our deep water, what I would call our Jones Act shipyards, if you will. We had over 50 in the 1950s. We've got about five right now. Um, and it's not just the number of shipyards, but more importantly, it, it's the naval architects. Uh, it, it's those welders, those TIG welders, um, very precious skill sets. Uh, we need to retain those skill sets into the future as well if we are going to call ourselves a maritime nation. Absolutely. And we're an island, so we better be able to do that. What other changes do you think are needed to U.S. maritime policy to make sure that we can maintain our place in a very challenging world? 
Well, the, I'm a big advocate for, for MARAD and the work that they do. And this, again, it comes back to sea lift as well. Um, as I look at other opportunities in the maritime industry, uh, the other is uh, we are one of the largest sources of liquefied natural gas. We haven't fully developed the infrastructure for that. Um, it burns cleaner than heavy sulfur fuel. It's not green. I understand that. Um, but we're not at a tipping point yet where we can go net carbon zero. Uh, but we can at least minimize our carbon footprint if we come up with a better infrastructure scheme uh, to move a lower sulfur, lower sulfur, sulfur fuel such as LNG uh, as we look at those production opportunities, uh, not just domestically, but clearly looking what happens in Europe. Um, European nations will probably be looking to the U.S. and says, hey, we want your natural, we don't want Russia. We're willing to pay this much. So there's an economic opportunity here for us as well. I think that is uh, worthy of a near-term investment. Absolutely, absolutely. And since you mentioned environmental issues, sustainability, that just gets me to something we worked on quite a bit during your tenure as Commandant, which was safety and environmental stewardship. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the Jones Act in really undergirding that partnership between domestic maritime and the U.S. Coast Guard to keep people and property and the environment safe? Well, certainly. And it really comes down to, you know, initial construction of a U.S. flagship. Uh, the Coast Guard, and working with American Bureau of Shipping, um, we provide quality assurance over these ships. They're not breaking up when they first put to sea. In fact, they serve for many, many years. Um, we're building ships now that are dual fuel that can ship between LNG and, and lighter fuels uh, but with a keen eye on minimizing their carbon footprint. Uh, we're their advocate at the International Maritime Organization as well. Um, we promote um, low sulfur emissions when they're out in the deep water, uh, and we do annualized inspections on these ships as well, which is why we don't have the Argo merchants and ships breaking up if you go back in time. Uh, many of these lessons learned are, are literally written in blood when you look at casualty investigations, but we've, we've learned from those mistakes as a nation uh, to make this a very safe industry. This is not the dangerous catch of our maritime infrastructure. Well said. Admiral, it is always just a pleasure to talk with you. Before we wrap up today, is there anything you would like to dig a little bit deeper on? Anything I didn't ask you about that you'd like to highlight for our listeners before we wrap up? Yeah, so a lot of people look at this Jones Act. It came out 129 years ago, and people say it's old law. Um, well, I compare that to the Second Amendment. It came out 230 years ago, the right to bear arms. And, and that amendment went into place because we didn't have a standing army. We couldn't afford one. Well, today we do have a standing army. It's called the National Guard. And so some would say, well, isn't the Second Amendment obsolete? And I'm not here to, you know, advocate one way or the other. I'm just saying, you know, if, if we're making these type of comparisons without understanding, you know, the implications, there, there's a significant misunderstanding of, of the risk that we would impose for maybe, a, even if it is a short-term game, by repealing the Jones Act. 23 million workers, those jobs would go away. $4.6 trillion of commerce, much of that enabled by the Jones Act. And oh, by the way, these Jones Act industries, they pay corporate taxes. They're, they're under our scrutiny for safety and environmental compliance. I use the example in Hawaii. If you open a restaurant and you don't pay any rent, you pay no insurance, you pay your workers way below minimum wage, and you offer, and this is a Jones Act exemption example, 
And the restaurant next door, they're, they're providing incentives for their employees, yet they can't match what their competitor is paying. And so now we outsource our restaurant because a foreign nation could do it cheaper, subsidizing it. You could do it with rail. You could do it with trucking. Um, why do we do it with maritime? Uh, let's not use this as an example. Let's stick to the Made in USA brand and our people. Amen. Amen. So many critical reasons to do that, as you've highlighted. 4.6 trillion, I think, was the number. Admiral, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's been great talking with you. Uh, that is all for this episode of the American Maritime Podcast. We hope that you will share it with others who are interested in a strong American maritime. I'm Jennifer Carpenter, signing off. Mm-hmm.